Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Luke Marshall, and he operates the Things Observed podcast. And I've been listening with great interest this three-part series that he had. And it featured somebody who I have a personal interest in. His name is Edward Lansdale. But uh, the three-part series, the title is Blood and Gold. And the first part is Blood and Gold, Golden Lily, Yamashita's Treasure, and the Birth of a Multi-Billion Dollar Black Budget. The second one is Blood and Gold, The Golden Buddha, A False Flag, Multi-Billion Dollar Black Budgets, and A Deadly what's the last part here? A Deadly Enterprise. And then the, second, the third is Blood and Gold, Edward Lansdale, Blood-Sucking Vampire Psyops, The Phoenix Program, Operation Mongoose, and JFK. And I've talked to uh, Valentine, who he mentions, and I think in this third part series, I've had him on my show. I should probably repost that. But it's a story that I really wasn't that familiar with. I didn't, I knew about kind of the fame Nazi treasures, Nazi gold, art thefts, and all things that kind of happened in the European theater, theater. So I wasn't, didn't know that much about this. So I'm glad he did it. But this aren't the only topics he's covered. He did uh, two shows on Son of Sam and the Process Church, two shows. He's covered Tom DeLonge, who I'm interested in. So I'll put a link to his podcast in the show notes so people can check it out. Very, uh, lots of topics I'm interested in, a cold infiltration of the Catholic Church, Alfred Kinsey as well. But again, we're going to talk about this, specifically this three-part series. Maybe I'll have him on, talk about some of his other research. But this one, again, is titled Blood and Gold. So Luke Marshall, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So for people who may not have heard of your podcast, may not have heard of any of these shows, can you kind of talk about your background? You do clearly do a lot of reading. And what kind of led you up to putting together the Things Observed podcast and these particular shows titled Blood and Gold? So, so I'm a young guy, uh, but I also got into this whole parapolitical research stuff at a pretty young age. When I was 16 years old, I started getting real into it. And my dad was just kind of getting into some conspiracy stuff. And I was just... Uh, a normal Midwestern boy. And then my dad started getting red pilled or however you want to phrase that. And so he started coming at me with all these different ideas. And I, at first, you know, was trying to shut him down and prove him wrong. And then the more I got into it, I figured out, I think he's onto something. So, I mean, I've just had an interest in a lot of these subjects and I've just been kind of going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole for a while. And so I started things observed just because it felt kind of like what I needed to do in order to just justify reading all the books and spending so much time on it. I wanted to do something productive in regards to all of this stuff instead of just, you know, consuming this information and it taking up so much uh, mental real estate. So I started a Things Observed podcast and it's been a lot of fun. And yeah, I covered all kinds of subjects. Some of the ones that you've just mentioned, I've also talked a little bit about 9-11. Recently, I've been doing a series, just started a series on the 2001 anthrax attacks and how they relate to the current stuff with COVID and all that and how there's kind of this continuity of agenda and all different kinds of stuff, just kind of really covering whatever it is that interests me at the time and that I've been looking into. So that in short is kind of how I got into all of this. It's just really a a hobby of mine and yeah so i started the things observe podcast yeah you're doing good you're doing kind of like a deeper uh more analytical view on these subjects going in and kind of a longer form 
analyses. How how did you come across the whole blood and um, the blood and gold concepts in this book that you had? Like, there's a whole part of history that I wasn't really familiar with. Can you kind of talk about, was that one book that you read by the husband and wife team, right? Yeah, Gold Warriors by Donald and Peggy Seagrave. And, oh, Sterling, I meant Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. And so I just got, I don't remember where I first heard about the book, to be honest, but I read the book and then it just totally blew my mind because, you know, before I read this, I had no idea about any of it. I'm kind of like you where I heard some about the Nazi gold, but I really figured out that all the access powers, I mean, even some gold reserves that Mussolini like got in Ethiopia and would end up being used by uh, the the CIA and specifically uh, James Jesus Angleton in order to help rig elections in Italy. And I think that all of us in these parapolitical circles we know that there are black budgets. We know that there is this money that they can do stuff unaccountable, unaccounted for with that they don't need congressional approval in order to do. I mean, you're not going to do something like whack JFK or do a 9-11, you know, with official on the books money. So we've always kind of known that there's these black budgets out there. And I was just blown away when I read this book because I learned where some of this black budget money came from and we also know that it comes from you know uh drugs and we know that the cia is involved with cocaine trafficking and heroin trafficking and, and all kinds of other stuff like that but this is just another example of where some of that black money that money that they don't have to be held accounted for comes from and it's just a very interesting story all the way through it really is something else so yamashita was one of the generals Japan was under the imperial kind of Japanese invaded started off in China, if I believe, and then moved South Philippines, um, Singapore, right. And looting all the way through. Yeah. So the imperial Japanese would invade um, a total of 12 countries in a 50 year span. And uh, yeah, Manchuria and China would be one of the first places and. You know, we just mentioned a little bit about drugs, but the Imperial Japanese would actually help cultivate opium and stuff like that. And they would actually use it against the populace of places as kind of a weapon against them. And I think that we have seen something similar going on in America for some time. But yeah, uh, Yamashita was a Japanese uh, general and he was kind of like a, a hero to the Imperial Japanese and he had done a lot to earn people's respect and so he would uh, come into the war in the Philippines and this was shortly after America uh, came into the conflict as well and initially the um, America would uh, be able so the, the the way that this gold got into the Philippines in the first place is initially America had some faulty torpedoes. And so the Japanese could kind of, you know, make the trek from places in the far East with their gold back to Japan unmolested. But then when America fixed their torpedo problem, then they would, you know, just sink any ship that was coming through there. And so the Japanese kind of had to come up with a new strategy 
And they believed that in any post-war agreement that they could foresee that they would be able to retain the Philippines. And so that's why they began to start hiding all of this gold in the Philippines. And the Philippines already had some tunnels from the time of Spanish colonial rule. And then America would actually come in later and they would further work on these tunnels. And then the Japanese would come and they would use a lot of these tunnels and create vaults deep underground and store all the gold and other treasures that they were getting from um, this looting of the Far East. And it wasn't just gold. I mean, there was obviously gold reserves, but they were also taking private art collections and all kinds of other valuable things. And this was this whole program was called Ken no Yuri or the Golden Lily. So in the title of my first podcast episode on this, when it says Golden Lily, that's what it's uh, referring to. And it actually comes from one of Emperor Hirohito's poems where he uses the phrase Golden Lily. And so there was just kind of this systematic looting of Asia and it kind of served a twofold purpose. First, it removed all of the cultural identity of the people, making them easier to subjugate in these places. And it also helped fund all their military expenditures and all their, all the, you know, operations that they wanted to conduct. And of course, you know, further enrich the elite. And it was sanctioned at the highest levels. It was known by Emperor Hirohito. And it was actually his brother, Prince Chichibu, who was in charge of running this whole golden lily operation. And it is, was of particular interest to me. And I think it'd be of particular interest to your listeners because in this golden lily operation, we can kind of see the nexus between uh, everyone from drug smugglers and Yakuza gangsters to, you know, the highest level of, of royalty on the Japanese side. And eventually all this gold that would end up being acquired would find its way into the hands of people like you mentioned earlier, Edward Lansdale and stuff. Right. So they accrued all of this stuff in the war. There was the attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Right. So that began the Pacific theater for the U S and how did this, all of this gold that they amassed, and you're talking tons of gold right this isn't like a small amount right oh yeah tons and tons of gold uh like so much gold that during the first brett and woods conference they would uh for for brevity's sake because this stuff gets really complicated but all the world currencies would be pegged to the american dollar and the american dollar would be set on the price of gold. And at the time they set that to $35 an ounce and the Seagraves argue very convincingly in their book that we are talking about such copious amounts of gold that this could have caused basically something cataclysmic on the global financial stage and could have plummeted the price of gold, you know, way beyond $35 an hour. And with, you know, that being when, the dollar became the world reserve currency. And at the time it was still redeemable in gold. Obviously if the price of gold fell incredibly below $35 an ounce. But I mean, I saw just like one of the many funds that was set up from this gold was estimated by the Seagraves in their book 
to be worth $50 billion in the 70s, you know, so today that would be even more money. And that's just one in a multitude of funds. So we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. Right. In the in those in those era pre when actually the U.S. was a gold based currency, right? It was before Nixon. So these was, was huge sums of money. Uh, so the, there was definitely an interest in obtaining that. And can you talk about, I mean, there were some big names who really wanted to secure that, right? I mean, the Dulles Brothers, the Ansdale, et cetera. Oh, yeah, there was there was definitely some big names that wanted to secure that money. So I guess that may be a good place to start with this and kind of work our way into some of these big names who come up is that uh, there was this guy who um, Santa Romana or Santi, as he was known by his friends, and he was a a Filipino American intelligence asset, um, you know, during the time. And he would actually carry out the torture of, we mentioned General Yamashita, who was this Japanese general who helped oversee some aspects of the Golden Lily operation. And so they would torture not General Yamashita because the uh, America would come in and uh, Yamashita would surrender. And he would be, I believe, if I remember correctly, the first foreign general who would be, you know, basically tried as a war criminal, which was kind of interesting because this isn't to say that Yamashita was a good guy by any stretch of the imagination. But as far as the imperial Japanese went, he was more moderate and reserved. Because, I mean, when you're talking about the Imperial Japanese, I mean, some of the most brutal stuff imaginable happened underneath them, like the rape of Nanking and just, you know, hundreds of thousands of people killed, you know, and basically one foul swoop as they entered into a city in just the most heinous, despicable ways. So, I mean, in that context, Yamashita wasn't that bad, Um, but he would kind of get the brunt of the punishment and he would be hanged after uh, what some would, you know, kind of consider a bit of a show trial. And then his driver, this guy named Kojima would end up being tortured by this Santa Romana who I just introduced into this whole narrative. And so since he was his driver, he obviously had gone around to a bunch of these different golden Lily sites And so Kojima would reveal the location of some of these sites. And then Edward Lansdale would become privy to the information that they got from the torture of this Kojima guy. And Edward Lansdale would immediately inform General MacArthur and people in the presidential administration at the time And so then the highest levels of power at that point kind of learned what was going on. And I believe it was Lansdale and a guy by the name of Robert Anderson who would hold all kinds of prestigious positions. I believe that he um, would eventually be maybe head of the World Bank. He got his start kind of in the Rockefeller, Harriman, big business side of things and worked his way into um, government. Or maybe I'm confusing him with someone else. He maybe got started as a Navy guy. But anyways, Anderson would kind of go at the behest of MacArthur and some of these other guys with Lansdale, and they would have Kojima show them 12 of the different vaults. And this would begin 
to be the U.S. really gaining control of a lot of these gold reserves and stuff like that. And the Santee guy who they learned this information from, they would actually end up using him as a cutout guy, kind of a fall guy. And so a bunch of bank accounts would be created under various different names um, through him. And he would be used as kind of this CIA cutout guy. Right. And it's, there is some dispute about the enormity, about how true the story is, but there's other players who verified that this happened. We know they looted the Japanese looted the gold, but other people other than like Peggy and Sterling Seagrave were involved and acknowledged the existence of these, these funds. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the whole thing. So that's done, but there were like other players. I mean, I think Clark Clifford, who I remember, was involved. MacArthur saw the caves too, right? So it wasn't yeah. just it wasn't just Lansdale. Yeah, and there's also um, some people like there's a guy in the Gold Warriors book who's interviewed extensively by the Seagraves, and they recount his story. A guy in, by the name of Ben Hameen who would help. He would actually he was a Filipino boy who was taken by the Imperial Japanese in order to show them around the Philippines because he was familiar with the area and they weren't. And so he was just 17 years old and he would actually end up becoming basically the servant of Prince Takeda, who was a cousin of Hirohitu. And he would go to a lot of these different vaults and stuff. So, I mean, there's all kinds of people who have, you know, stories like that. So we know that this gold was hidden there and it's, I don't know if you can find it in full, but the Seagraves, they used to sell like a CD-ROM of all the different documents and stuff that they used in Gold Warriors to where you can look for yourself. But I mean, if you go online and you look hard enough, I mean, you can see bank accounts with gold reserves in them with people like Lansdale's name written on it. Wow. You know, So actual documentation. So it is kind of interesting because, I mean... It, upon an initial look online into Yamashita's gold or something like that, people talk about it like this myth, like it's like the fountain of youth or something. But in my opinion, there's some pretty credible information to, to lead one into believe it. And I always try and do a good job of citing my sources and, and going to reputable places. So, I mean, I, I personally found it persuasive, but obviously there is you know definitely room for debate for how a massive these how massive these gold reserves are and stuff like that because we are talking about highly secret black operation type stuff and you know the whole purpose of a black budget is that people aren't supposed to know about it and not supposed to know how much money exactly is in there you know so i mean there is room for for speculation most definitely but i definitely believe that uh Yamashita's gold was real and that the you know we do know that people like Lansdale and you know Santa Ramana and some of these other guys who were working at the behest of the CIA came into contact with, with some of it All right so you have this huge fund funds there's like they said there was like 170 tunnels found like this these are it's not like you found one tunnel it was this huge complex and what's it, can you talk about how Lansdale kind of got involved and who he was? Uh, yeah, after yeah, most definitely. 
So, I mean, we can just kind of talk about Lansdale in general because he in the third part of my series on this subject is the main focus. That episode, I almost exclusively talk about Lansdale just because he's such an interesting character. He was born in 1908 and he was the son of a Presbyterian um, dad and his mother was a Christian scientist, you know, so the people who don't believe in using any kind of medicine, you know, you just pray away anything that you might get. So he came from an intensely religious household. Um, not to say that there's anything wrong with with that, but he would, with his upbringing, remember all sorts of religious sayings. And he would even go on to something I think is a little bit comical. He would like go on to teach his assassins and all these different, you know, mercenaries and stuff who worked underneath him, you know, cute little sayings. But it would end up kind of becoming more nefarious because, you know, he grew up with a lot of these strong beliefs, but then he would get into psychological warfare and psychological operations and he would end up kind of repurposing, you know, the folklore and the religious beliefs of people to use it against them. So, um, but yeah, he would study journalism at UCLA and he would go from being an, a copywriter for advertising agencies um, and then when Pearl Harbor happened, he would enlist in the army and he would, you know, quickly begin to make his way up the ladder and he would uh, get a position concocting psychological warfare plots for the military intelligence service and eventually the office of strategic services. So, I mean, this was even, you know, before the CIA and, and that, that I should clarify that too. I've said the CIA multiple times. Some of the times when I'm referring to this Golden Lily stuff, it'd be more accurate to say the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA. So he would work in military intelligence and then go into the OSS, and then he would start to work on PSYOPs. And he would write a pamphlet titled From the Serpent's Mouth, where he took old Japanese proverbs and he would apply them to point out the faults in Japan's military strategy in order to try and discourage them. And then at the end of September 1945, Truman would order the closure of the OSS. But men like Wild Bill Donovan and um, John Magruder and some of these others would make their way into the OSS. And Lansdale would be one of these guys who would make his way into the OSS. Um, make his way there i mean into military intelligence i'm, I'm sorry um right but but so he was in there he was one of the early people right there in the philippines right after the war right so he was that was one of his first assignments he eventually made it to vietnam and phoenix and all that other stuff but he really cut his teeth overseas in the philippines is that right yeah yeah so he would work for g2 military intelligence which is just a unit, a division of military intelligence, and where at the time you had a lot of the highest guys in intelligence who, you know, appear all throughout the story, like people like Lansdale and Charles Willoughby and uh, others who worked in G the G2 unit. And so after the he figured out about the torture of Kojima, Lansdale would report to General McMicking on this. And he would then fly to Tokyo and he would brief Charles Willoughby and General MacArthur on the findings of this. And then not long after that, MacArthur would uh, 
you know, report about this to Washington. And then he would go to Washington and he would fill in people who were inside President Truman's cabinet, like the national security aide to Truman and the Navy captain, Clark Clifford. And so, and, and other members of the cabinet. And so it's with Lansdell figuring out about through Santee and the torture of this Kojima, Yamashita's driver, that the highest levels of power in America would figure out about this gold. And so some of what took place after that is a bit of a mystery due to just all the secrecy that was around. But there would be two different high-level CIA sources, according if we're to believe the Seagraves, which... I, I personally do, but I can't verify this, you know, because these are anonymous CIA sources that they're saying that they're getting this from. But these sources would apparently tell the Seagraves that MacArthur and Robert Anderson would go with Lansdale and Santee to inspect a variety of these sites in the Philippines 12, if I remember proper, properly. And Robert Anderson would be rewarded for this by being given the position of Navy secretary. And then he would go on eventually to be deputy secretary of defense. And he would also hold a position as secretary of the treasury in the Eisenhower administration. And, you know, uh, we, we all know that MacArthur had, you know, a prestigious career. And so, I mean, it kind of seems like everybody who was involved with this was rewarded for this. So, um, after yeah, MacArthur had, MacArthur had a direct tied to the philippines right like he was made he left corregidor so his whole career was built i mean there was all that philippines involvement so he he was he knew about that area if i remember correctly yeah a, a lot of these high level guys were in the philippines and kind of got their start there i mean that's really where lansdale got um you know, aside from doing some psychological warfare stuff against the the japanese and stuff i mean he really got his start in the Philippines. And so uh, then after that, Lansdale would go on to, you know, work and do work in Vietnam. And Lansdale was in with the Dulles brother crowd. He would go to drinking parties hosted by Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles. And he would become a hit amongst the crowd. And when he was sent to Vietnam, Alan Dulles would say something along the lines of, I am sending one of my, my, my best guys. And he would end up doing work in Vietnam that would end up being the precursor to the Phoenix program, which I'm sure a lot of the people who listen to your show are familiar with the, the Phoenix program, kind of one of the most horrible excesses, if not the worst excess of the Vietnam war yeah, no question. It was a horror show. But he learned all that stuff. He was up against, after the war, it was a communist insurgency, right? Wasn't Lansdale involved in the hoop stuff? Can you talk about what he did and how he tried to kind of get into their heads? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Lansdale, he would help, yeah, exactly, squash the Huck Rebellion, this communist rebellion in the Philippines. And he would employ all kinds of psychological warfare tricks. Um, 
the Seagraves would say in Gold Warriors, and this is a quote, Lansdale, always the huckster, had movie crew film movie crew movie crews film phony attacks on villagers staged by special units of the Filipino army. And the next day filmed the liberation of the village led by a well-coached Magsese. It was pure Hollywood. So, I mean, this is literally like, you know, staging of a fictional rebellion, like a fictional battle. I mean, total Hollywood and then selling it to the public as reality, which he was perfectly cut out for that, given his experience in advertising at selling people on a lie. But he would also write about some of his own experiences in the Philippines in his autobiography, which I have read portions of, but I haven't read in full. I'm sure it'd be very interesting to get a deep look into this guy's mind, but it was called In the Midst of Wars. And he would, uh, and this is also talked about in a great book that I highly recommend to everybody, The Phoenix Program by Douglas Valentine. Um, that's where I actually first heard about Edward Lansdale and he first came onto my radar, but he would talk about how um, he would play upon the popular dread of an aswang or vampire to solve a difficult problem. And I think that this is just really debauched and horrible, but also totally fascinating. So Lansdale was kind of confronted with this problem where government troops wanted these communist guerrillas to move out of the hills but the local politicians and all this were afraid that if they did that the guerrillas would come down into the village and you know maybe take some of the quote big wigs as victims and so Lansdale would come up with quite the crafty way to get them to speedily leave this hillside that they were wanting them to get away from so he got a combat psychological warfare team together and he started planting stories among locals about vampires. And this plays into the uh, mythological beliefs, the folklore of, of the people in the Philippines. You know, so he starts going around, you know, oh, blah, 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 saw a vampire. And so then a couple days after he started seeding these stories of vampires amongst the villagers through his psychological warfare team, they would circle the town and then they would make their way up to the hill camp and they would stealthily set up an ambush along a trail that was used by these huck, the, the hucks, these communist guerrillas. And as the last person in this procession was locking, walking, this group would snatch the last man on, on the patrol and take him into the dark of the night. And they punctured two holes in his necks and then hung him up by his feet. So all the blood would drain out. And then they moved him back onto the trail, you know, so this pale bloodless man with two puncture holes in the neck, you know, the vampire got him. And of course, when the Hucks returned later looking for this guy who went missing from their patrol, they would find this. And I mean, what would any reasonable person do if you're occupying a hillside that you think is infested with vampires? You, you head out. And so the problem was solved. And reflecting on this, Lansdale would, uh, I can't remember exactly how he worded it, but basically be like, this was kind of low humor or, or whatever, but it was 
it was effective. And there was all kinds of other psychological warfare tricks that Lansdale would employ just like that. Right. And that was the beginning. So all these techniques that went into Vietnam Phoenix program started in uh, the Philippines. And who you mentioned, Magsaysay, he had a relationship with somebody who he was kind of like the uh, Rasputin, I think somebody said, or the kind of string puller for the future uh, president of the Philippines, right? Yeah, I believe that to be true. I, I, I can't remember all of that super well off the top of my head, so I don't want to dive too much into it. But I, what I do know is that just like in that picture, you see Lansdale and Magsaysay together, and Lansdale would help kind of groom him and cultivate him. And as we know, I mean, something that the OSS and you know now the CIA have always been very good at is installing puppet leaderships in countries and installing you know uh, regimes that are going to be loyal to the CIA, loyal to American big business, and who are going to work with them the way that they want, you know, much more than communist huck gorillas, you know. So we we can't let those guys be in power. So we have to go put our own guys over there. And that's kind of what Lansdale was trying to do with Max Sese. Right. So he's involved with Max Sese. And then he uh what what happened next in the story with all the gold? There was this they used that gold, Lansdale and these other guys, as a black slush fund, right? Yeah, yeah. Let I'll just go ahead and I'll talk about um, some of the various different funds that, yeah. And so um, one of these funds was the M Fund, and the M Fund would be used by America in the 1940s when a socialist government would win in Japan. And so the fund would be used to discredit the cabinet, and it would be used again to dis- to sway decision making in Japan. And when they were considered developing stronger relations, a stronger relationship with the People's Republic of China. And so uh, eventually this guy named Yoshida Shiguru would become the prime minister. And this would soothe the conscience of the establishment because he was right wing. He was not socialist. You know, this was kind of at the beginning of 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 the Cold War. But also the MFUN, along with uh a Yakuza gangster and drug smuggler named Yoshio Kodama would help fund the Liberal Democratic Party, which is to this day the party with power in Japan. And so there's one example. That's what one of the funds was used for. Um, another fund was the Yatsuya Fund, and this was a uh, General Willoughby, who I just briefly mentioned, he was the head of uh, the G2 military intelligence, and he would be in control of this fund, and he would use it to bankroll Japan's underworld, everything from extortion, kidnapping, murder, and assassinations, I mean, and it would particularly be used to suppress dissidents and leftist activity, you know, I mean, so we're talking about things like... uh, political protesters and leaders of thought or maybe student leaders being assassinated or intimidated or beaten into submission. And so Willoughby would actually work with the Yakuza, which once again, something that I think is interesting and is something that constantly keeps showing a backup in my research is when there's this nexus between the criminal underworld and 
uh, intelligence agencies and, and politicians and a lot of people's mind, these are completely separate things. You know, they're at odds with one another. But when you really dig down deep into it, they all work with each other when it's beneficial to them. And so, yeah, there's the Yoshio Kadama, who was the uh, smuggler who I previously mentioned. He was also an ultra nationalist. He would actually be arrested as a war criminal, but Willoughby, the head of G2 military intelligence, would come in and he would have all charges against him drop on the condition that he helped fight communism in Asia. And so uh, this Yoshio Kadama would use his CIA connections and he would help funnel money to right wing causes and politicians in Japan. And he would also do things, you know, lovely things like help disrupt labor unions and and what have you. And so Kodama would actually go on in the future to, as previously mentioned, help set up the liberal Democratic Party. And so that's an example of how not all of this stuff is, you know, just distant stuff in the past. But I mean, the liberal Democratic Party, which is more right wing than it sounds, um, is you know, to this day in, in power and the Yatsuya fund, which we've been talking about, it actually gets its name from uh, the Tenderloin district in Tokyo, where you have, you know, prostitutes and Yakuza gangsters and all these various different types of criminals who are um, working, um, you know, uh, casinos, brothels, you name it. And uh, so this, Kadama, who we've been talking about, he would actually go on to fund uh, the Cannon Agency, which was named after the U.S. Army Colonel Jack Cannon. And uh, at least according to the Seagraves, they considered this Willoughby's dirtiest operation. You know, and when you take into mind what we just mentioned with the Yatsuya Fund, uh, it's that's pretty crazy. But they basically describe it as a death squad and they would arrange the bodily harm and murder of labor union organizers, student leaders, prominent socialists, all kinds of other leftists. And then, um, then there was one of the last funds that I'll, that I'll mention. There was, uh, the, the chief prosecutor in the war crimes trial. And, uh, he was a friend of general MacArthur was this guy named Joseph B. Keenan and the next fund, this Keenan fund, was named after this Joseph B. Keenan, and it was used to bribe witnesses at the war crimes trials and to persuade people to falsify their statements and all kinds of other stuff. But this is really only talking about the Japanese portion of the black budget stuff. There's also Nazi money that would make its way into these. And actually, uh, much of the Japanese gold would be rolled over into what was kind of informally called the Black Eagle Trust, which is named after the Nazi Black Eagle that they would stamp onto their gold bullion. And uh, this would be another source for American black budgets. And you have people like Robert Anderson, who once again show up in that story so some of the same players and um, also henry stimson for um the people who've heard of them uh him and so i mean you have nazi money as well and then like i i think i already mentioned this but then you also have people like james jesus angleton who would help recover um 
gold that was, I believe, kept in Ethiopia that was taken by Mussolini and stuff like that. So, I mean, you really have all these defeated Axis powers. That wealth, all that gold and the loot that they had acquired through their imperialist crusades, it didn't just disappear into thin air. It, it had to go somewhere. And, of course, you have people in American intelligence who are keeping a close eye on all these things. And they're certainly going to want to have their their portion of it, if not the the whole thing. Yeah, it's incredible. It really is an incredible story. So it's all used to kind of further right wing uh, American Americanism and also in Japan as well to kind of keep up the social order. The, the first time I heard Lansdale's name was in JFK. This is an actual picture from the JFK assassination. And somebody said that that's Lansdale walking as the three tramps kind of infamously are being escorted from the area. But that uh, there's one guy who was in the military said that, yeah, that's exactly how he walked, but you know, go figure. But so he may have been there, but it's, uh, he had an incredible life. Yeah. L Fletcher Prouty believed that. And he's written some books on the JFK assassination. He also wrote a good book called the secret team. And he was, um, a very high level guy. I think he might've even been like in the joint chiefs of staff or something like that, like very high up military guy who was in a position to know a lot of the people who he talks about. And I don't know if I personally believe this, but Prouty says that he basically uh, kind of insinuates that Lansdale might be even one of the guys who uh, was, in charge or, or helped, you know, run the, the, the Kennedy assassination, which I'm, I'm not sure about that, but I'm, my mind is definitely open to it, but yeah, that's him with the, the three tramps. I, I don't know if this is true. I've heard one of those guys is Woody Harrelson's dad. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that too. His dad was tall and a hitman, So people have made that thing. I don't know if these have ever been confirmed, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Woody Harrelson's dad said he was involved in the shooting, and then he retracted it and said he was involved. But you know, nothing. He was capable of it because he killed a federal judge and he got up convicted of it, which is really bold. Yeah, um, yeah. I um, want to say that it was a, a book by Michael Hoffman. It might have been Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, which is an out there but interesting book. Um, I think in there he says at some point that he like got the chance to interview Woody Harrelson and he just basically from the get go because he didn't want to make him feel like he was like setting him up or something, but like asked him if his dad was involved in it, if I remember correctly. And according to Hoffman, I don't know if he's a, a reliable narrator, but Hoffman was like he, you know basically like got like real upset and like you know like teared up or something like that like didn't admit to it or something i don't i don't know if that's that's true or not but lansdale was also interested in um sorry lansdale was also involved with a a number of other interesting things that i'll just say real quick before we get off here just because i think that your listeners would be interested in it but Lansdale was also involved with Operation Mongoose, which you know was training anti-Castro Cubans. That's another thing that factors into the 
JFK assassination. And so he would lead the military side of it. William Harvey, the CIA guy, would lead things on the CIA side. So he was largely in charge of Operation Mongoose. Um, on March 6th, uh, 13th, 1962, the Joint Chiefs of Staff would make a proposi proposition to Kennedy to attack itself and blame Cuba, you know, Operation Northwoods. And this was actually as a response by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to a request from Lansdale for uh, Lansdale's basically like, how do we come up for a pretext for going to war with Cuba and stopping the, you know, communist revolutionaries there? And then, yeah, you have people like L. Fletcher Prouty who think that he maybe had something to do with the JFK assassination. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that he would interestingly like retire in 1963, shortly before the JFK assassination took place which is kind of an interesting time to take a step back and to you know uh leave uh political and military life or what have you but anyhow um yeah that's just a, a brief rundown of some of the other things that lansdale was involved in i'm sure there's a whole lot more oh yeah yeah he was he was involved in a lot of stuff but right at the really at the apex of the american kind of empire post-world war ii very involved, very connected, friends with the Dulles brothers who were involved in all kinds of stuff. Uh, Iran and Honduras and all these other countries got overthrown. And were involved. So he was just another piece in that kind of... Indonesia was also another place the U.S. was involved in, Italy. Italy. Guatemala, but, uh, I mean, the list yeah, just Guatemala, goes on and on yeah. and on, yeah. It really does. I mean, it's really astonishing. Um, but thanks so much for your time, Luke. Great talk. You're super smart. I highly recommend people go check out Things Observed, not just for this Blood and Gold series, but for everything. I got to catch up too. But really interesting talk. Where's the best place for people to listen to your podcast or and or contact you? So you can listen to my podcast on most all the major streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Also, if you prefer not to use one of those, I am. Um, you can go to rss.com slash things observed you can listen to me from rss.com and just pull it up in your browser or something like that and if you use some other kind of streaming platform check it out because i can't even remember all the ones i'm set up on anymore because i just have it all syndicated through my rss feed but i'm on a lot of different stuff so you can probably find me on one of your preferred platforms and then if you want to get in contact with me i respond to every serious inquiry or question or criticism or whatever on Twitter. So I'm thing observer, just all one word on Twitter. My DMS are open. So if anybody has anything that they want to say to me or think that I should know about or a request for a future episode, I mean, uh, you can contact me through there and yeah, I'm currently working on, uh, second part to my series on the 2001 anthrax attacks. It'll probably just be a two-part series, but it goes into some of the stuff that was talked about in the 2001 anthrax set deception, a good book by Graham McQueen. But we also go a little bit deeper and we talk about uh, dark winter, which was basically like an event 201 style thing where it basically foreshadowed the anthrax attacks and people who were involved with that, are now involved with the coronavirus response and, and all that. And one of these guys is a real crazy guy who's also uh, connected 
uh, to to Kroll. He worked for Kroll and had a job in the World Trade Center, and he was super interested in building collapse and stuff. So we're, we're getting into some some crazy stuff that uh, teaches us a little bit about the past, but is also still relevant to things that we're all having to live through up into this day and time. But uh, thanks for having me on. It's been a blast. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, likewise. Great to have you. I'd love to have you come back, talk about some of your other research sometime in January. But again, the, the title of the podcast is Things Observed, so things plural. And then you can see him on Twitter at Thing Observer. So hash uh, uh, at Thing Observer. And it's Luke Marshall. And we discussed the three-part series, Blood and Gold. So thanks so much, Tom. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. All right, take care. Stay there. Stay there.